Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Manchester Is Red podcast from the Manchester Evening News. I'm your host, Rich Fay, and I'm delighted to be joined once again by Tyrone Marshall. Hello, how are we? I'm not too bad. And this week I get to see you as well, Tyrone, which I think is a pleasure. It, it's been a while. It has been a while. We're doing this podcast as both a audio and visual uh, uh, sort of production this week. So if you listen to this on your usual podcast app and you wonder what I'm on about, there are clips online and I'm sure we'll put all over the socials, etc. But yeah, Tyrone, nice, nice, nice to do it as a video. Actually, it made me get dressed for a change. Yeah, same. Well, you, uh, you gave. I'm not sure if it was stick or abuse or or compliment on my hair before, but it's the first time. <laughs> I mean, even to get into podcast mode today, I've worn jeans. I've not worn Incredible. jeans for weeks, but you you feel like you've had a proper day when you've, you've yeah. got some jeans on because you're so uncomfortable. But. We go again. The season's in full flow now. Uh, United preparing for a game against Brighton, and they did so by playing Brighton. Uh, United at the Alex on Saturday, the early kickoff in the Premier League. 3-2 win, dramatic win. It was a performance which sort of divided fans' opinions on social media tie because United were fortunate to get the win. Uh, Brighton hit the woodwork five times there's the controversial late penalty which was a penalty so maybe not controversial in that respect but United certainly rode their luck but they won the game that's all you can do Brighton a much better side than maybe their name just suggests they were great against Chelsea they were much better than Newcastle the weekend before Brighton away difficult place to go but United won and that's all you can ask at this stage of the season particularly if they'd already lost to Crystal Palace yeah I think the result was absolutely massive given they had lost to to Palace and and the kind of Maybe not the mood around the club. I'm sure internally the mood's not bad, but the the feeling amongst the fan base and, and the general the general mood amongst the fan base has been pretty negative over the last week. With a, a slow transfer window so far, shall we say, that defeat to Crystal Palace, the underwhelming performance to Palace, it did kind of feel like it was threatening that this season could already spiral out of control if they didn't win or at least pick up a positive result at Brighton. So. I think getting the three points and getting the season up and running was absolutely massive. I don't think we can let that fool us that this was some kind of good performance by United or a performance back back in the days of, of June and July where they looked like a team going places. They were extremely scratchy. I think they played well for maybe 15 minutes at the start of the second half and, and that was about it. I think you play that game 10 times and Brighton probably win seven of them, maybe more than that. United did get lucky, undoubtedly. Like you said, the woodworkers hit five times. United were just second best for probably 70, 75 minutes of that game. And we were hugely fortunate to get away with the three points. It wasn't a convincing performance. It wasn't a performance you can build anything on, really. I think there was there was issues probably throughout the side. But like you say, it's three points that count. At least it's some kind of momentum and gives them something to build on going into that Tottenham game next week. Yeah, well, it's interesting, isn't it, that the win like the one at Brighton, when you're in the doom and gloom, it's seen as a scrappy win. But if another team did that, you'd be saying it's a sign of champions. I'm not saying United are going for a title challenge, but they've won. That's all you can ask for. And like we said, at the stage of the season, it was important for United to get points on the board and build upon the uh, the win against Luton as well. But you spoke about how maybe disjointed United were tying. They did look second best in large areas of the pitch. Um, yeah, there was maybe that spell where they were on top, but it was, it was very fortunate maybe the man of the win and again it was Bruno Fernandes who who delivered it but in terms of the team selection do you think Solskjaer maybe set the onus from, from kickoff really because I don't think anyone was expecting Victor Lindelof to play um he was he's been tired all season you know he, he pulled out of the Sweden squad because he was feeling tired before the season had even started he's you know I know there's gonna be lots of questions about Lindelof going forward and yes he's not 
maybe the title winning centre back, but not as bad maybe as recent performances have been. He just looked absolutely knackered. And the entire team selection that Solskjaer went for was just really odd. Yeah, it was. And he, he kind of explained it beforehand by saying this team had played well here back in June. I think it was end of June when, when they won 3 0. And they were very good that night. But the fact he was going back to that team kind of fed the, the cliches that United have stood still this summer. And really, you'd, you'd have to say that's accurate. I mean, theoretically, you could have played Van der Beek in there maybe for Pogba. And given Pogba's performances in the first two games, I think that probably needs to happen sooner rather than later. But it did kind of show a lack of progress this summer. And I think more concerning than the fact that he was playing the same team is that the team were trying to play exactly the same way. And it, it feels a bit, when we, I spoke about this for the Palace game, and it feels a bit like teams are working out how to defend against this United. And, you know, when, you, when you've got the better players, there will always be an element of individuals that are going to win your games and, and do exceptional things like Marcus Rashford did and, and create chances. But every team in the Premier League has got good players it, to some degree. And if you've got a good manager and a clever manager tactically, as Graham Potter is, then, you know, t- good tactics and a good setup can make a big difference. And it looked to me like Brighton had learned from playing against United previously. They'd learned how to defend against them. Worryingly was like Palace. They got through United's midfield and, and got to two-on-twos and three-on-threes defensively very easily, which I think is a concern for United at the moment, considering neither Maguire nor Lindelof looked great in, in one-on-one defending. And it just felt like Brighton were a team that had made progress from that game. And, and United just turned up expecting to do the same things and had realised that they weren't they weren't able to do the same things. You're right that it was a surprise Lindelof kept his place and Solskjaer was glowing about Eric Bailly on, on the Friday in his press conference. So I think it was a, a classic diversion, really. I think everyone presumed Bailly was going to play. I thought Bailly had played pretty well at Luton, um, all things considered. And Henderson's save got, got a lot of attention, and, and rightly so. But if Eric Bailly doesn't produce a brilliant goal line clearance straight afterwards, the, the save kind of counts for nothing as the rebound goes in. And it was brilliant defensive work from Bailly. I thought he had a really good game at Luton. He stepped out of defence well, read the play well. And it does kind of feel like, what more does he need to do to get a chance? I know he's made errors himself, notably, I think, the one against Norwich in the FA Cup last year. But if you've got one centre-half who's playing every week who is underperforming at the moment and another who, when he gets his chance, is playing well, Bailly's got to be thinking, what more can I do here? Apart from what, if I'm, what I'm doing is not good enough to get a game in the Premier League, then what else can I do? And I know Solskjaer ever didn't want this Lindelof-Maguire partnership to work, but the evidence suggests it's not working. They don't look a natural partnership to me. They don't look like... The Why do you think that is? Do you think Solskjaer's got almost too much pride in the fact that he's put that partnership together and it's it's always going to be maybe the defining factor of his era? I mean, you, you, you usually look back at managers and you can tell from their reign who their preferred centre-backs were. Um, and for Solskjaer, it seems to be, like you said, Lindelof and Maguire. He's got the Scandinavian links with Lindelof. He, he, he's a big admirer of Lindelof. He, he doesn't slate him. He you know He gave him his new contract as well. So there's a lot of sort of love in between those two. But surely, like you said, it seems like Eric Bailly is the one player who's exempt from from getting a call up on form. Every other player is told, you know, if you play well, you'll go into the first team. But like you said, Eric Bailly, he's not injured, which is a relief. And surely you've just got to make the most of that while you can. It seems odd. And if you can't, as Eric Bailly, if you can't get a game maybe at Brighton away, you, you maybe do wonder what your role is in this team. Because United are already overstocked of centre-backs. But maybe the bizarre thing is the fact that they don't drop the two who play every week. Yeah, it is. You know, it is very strange. I mean, I think they've got eight centre-backs, maybe nine if you include Mengi. I mean, it's easy to lose counts. They've got a lot of centre-backs. And, and yet they want last, another one. And they want another so. one. And yet in the last three months, they've played Harry Maguire against Lask Lintz and against Luton. 
I mean, it's extraordinary. They've got so many centre-backs and yet Maguire is completely undroppable when, I mean, the fact he played against Lask back in August when they were fired a lot from the first leg was just completely insane. The fact that he's playing against Luton, the, the only reason for him to play that game against Luton was to get a partnership going with Bailly, but then we see that Bailly's not in the team at Brighton, so I, I'm not really sure. It would have made sense. more sense to play Bailly and Lindelof against Luton. It would, yeah, it, it, it would. It, I don't get that. I mean, we'll probably go on to Maguire at a different point, maybe in a different podcast, because he's obviously the club captain. He's not going to be the one who drops out of the, the yeah. lineup. But in terms of the, the overall defence, uh, United's defensive structure as well, saw quite a bit of criticism, and probably the worst player was Wan-Bissaka against Brighton. But again, he doesn't look fit. I guess that's the caveat. And you've we've seen across Europe this weekend that teams who went far in Europe have all taken beatings. Bayern Munich lost, City lost, you know, United haven't had a pre-season, so that's understandable. Like I said, Lindelof's not fully fit. Wan-Bissaka doesn't look fully fit. Do you... I mean, the defensive issue has obviously come up a lot in recent weeks. and There's a lot of people saying a centre-back and a left-back are more crucial signings than a right-winger. I still think right-winger is more pressing than either of those two issues. Do you think it is just this recent form which has made everyone maybe over-exaggerate on the centre-back because they're analysing two centre-backs who aren't fully fit at the moment. Yeah, a little bit. And I, I think United are right. They can't go and sign another centre-back when they've got so many centre-backs as it is. They have to prioritise getting rid of some of those centre-backs rather than trying to sign another. And I think, I mean, it's important to remember they did have the third best defensive record last year. I think they conceded one more than City, three more than Liverpool, maybe. And you could argue that as Solskjaer tries to get them playing more attacking football, perhaps that would increase. But the defensive record wasn't horrific last year. Well, they also had that run of games where it was nine clean sheets and 11. Yeah, yeah, they that did. That was this year as well. It's not as if that was last season before mm. Christmas. I mean, that was, I think that was February into March sort of sort of time. It's, it's you know, it is recent. And it was the back four of wan Shaw, Lindelof and Maguire for much of that. Yeah, it was. They, they did. They defended pretty well during there. They still have games, like against Palace, where they look inconsistent. And I'm still concerned that they don't, those two, Lindelof and Maguire, don't look a natural partnership for whatever reason that is. They don't look to bring the best out of each other. Maybe Solskjaer's playing them to try and get that understanding up, but at the moment they don't seem to complement each other. But I think with the right winger thing, I think, I mean, I, I you always say you, you build a title winning team from the back, but I'm not sure that's the case anymore. And you look at the teams who've won the title last year. I did a bit of research for a piece of this in the summer. Over the last seven years or so, teams who are winning the league are scoring on average about 90 goals a year. You know, City have scored 100, I think, in winning it twice. Liverpool got a lot last year. I think it's 85, 90 goals a year you score to win the title. Teams who are winning the title are conceding 33, 34. You know, you, you can concede 30, mid-30s in goals now and still win the title if you score a lot of goals. And United conceded 35 last year. But on average, over the last seven years, they're scoring 66, I think, or 61. Mm. I think they scored 66 last year. So if they've got designs on winning the title... You know, maybe they need to concede two or three less, but they probably need to score maybe 30 more. So you can understand why Solskjaer is prioritising adding more goals because I think scoring 66, 70 goals a season, it's not going to win you a league title. It's not going to get you anywhere close. To win a league title these days, you've got to score 90-plus goals, I think, in a season. So you can understand why Solskjaer is prioritising. You know, looking at just at the pure statistics, why he's prioritising adding goal scorers. And if you've got that level of goal scoring in your team, you can afford to concede twos and threes. Look at Liverpool on the opening day, conceded three and, and won four, three. And if you've got that firepower, you can kind of allow a little bit of defensive frailty and, and the fact you're not not 
brilliant defensively. I mean, I don't think any title winners these days are great defensively. You, no, you I think, like, like said, so, yeah. And if you, sorry to interrupt you, but if you it's look right. at the rest of the Premier League as well, you've only got to, and United aren't winning the league. Let's, let's mm. face that, that's not their objective this season. The target isn't, Solskjaer, you've got to win the league. It's have a more competitive challenge than last year. So you've either got to be better than the other 17 or 18 teams. Maybe count Liverpool out of it for now. And defensively, United probably still are because the standard of defending, like you said, isn't that high. City mm. finished second. Their defence still looks awful. Tottenham's doesn't look good. Arsenal's looks quite solid, to be fair. They've, they've, they've stroked it up. But, you know, man for man, United still probably have the second or third best defence in the league. Chelsea's doesn't look very good. You know, the, they only have to be better than, like I said, for 18 teams if you want to get second place. So... Like you said, I think it, it, the priority has to be striking. And I think the issue United might have now is that they're going to put so much over-reliance and maybe not haphazard, but sort of a reactionary transfer stance where they go for a centre-back rather than a right winger, that then you'll have to have the same issues again because they've got to a stage where you're not going to be signing a world-class centre-back. So you're potentially signing a centre-back who doesn't start every week, which is just obscene, when there's a right-wing situation, which is so clear... You haven't signed a right winger since Wilfred Zaha. There's still mm. there's a, a huge gate in the starting lineup, and I just feel like maybe everyone's getting a bit carried away with the centre backs. And like you said, even to be second best in the Premier League, I don't think you need a good defence anymore because you know I mean it was only under Mourinho that United arguably had the worst defence, but managed to finish second. City won the league mm. that season with Otamendi as in the PFA Team of the Year. So players who aren't maybe eight, nine out of ten every week can still have remarkable runs of form. And maybe it's just about confidence. And once United get one or two clean sheets, as we saw of that run where they had nine out of 11, it can come back and, and it can form that partnership and be quite quite solid there. But Ty, you were going to mention, maybe I think you've gone to Bayern Munich and stuff there. You were saying that, you know, all these teams have got defensive frailties, even the yeah. very best. Yeah, they have, you know, and even the team that won the league last year, Liverpool have got defensive frailties. We've seen that this season. We saw City yesterday who have been making the same defensive mistakes for a year and still haven't been able to fix them and, and Pep still hasn't been able to fix them. So I don't think that, you know, you, you, it might be a case that next summer, if they, let's say, dream scenario, they get Sancho this week, the attack is firing on all cylinders this season. And then next year you think, right, the, the obvious gap now is a centre-half, someone to partner Maguire. Then that, I mean, that would work for me. And I think that's the same sort of thing that Pep did at City and Klopp did at Liverpool. City's first season, they were, they were brilliant going forward and couldn't defend. Uh, Pep signed, what, three, four fullbacks and got his system going and changed it and, and it worked perfectly. Liverpool were brilliant to watch under Klopp, couldn't defend for their lives. He signed a world-class centre-half and a world-class goalkeeper and, and fixed those problems. So I think there's almost a case these days that modern teams and, and great title-winning teams are almost built from the front and you get a collective of goal scorers going and a good system going. And then if your defence isn't good enough, you just go and sign, you know, whether that's Super Meccano next year, who knows, but you go and sign an elite level centre-half and suddenly everything might fit into place. So, yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't be worried about signing a centre-half, particularly this summer. I mean, if one becomes available, then maybe, but are you really signing someone who's going to make a massive difference? I mean, you look at City signing Ruben Diaz. I, I don't think he's going to slot in there and completely transform City's defence. And I don't think he'd slot in there and transform United's defence. He's a work in progress. He's never played outside of Portugal. So I, I don't think... Well, he's like Rick Lindelof, isn't he? Yeah, he is. So he's he's yeah, he is really back. yeah, yeah, so, he's the next victor. Yeah, so you, you wonder about that. And, you know, uh, 
you mentioned it, Ty, that it's based on the attacking front. And I think people maybe forget just how good United were after lockdown. Obviously, mm. they deteriorated towards the end, the two games a week with its toll, and the fitness was, was dilapidated by the end of it. But there was that stage, and I think maybe in that Bournemouth game where United scored five, was it? Um, United just looked like they were going to score every attack they had. They had Marshall, Rashford, Greenwood, all purring, all excited in front of goal. And like you said, it doesn't matter because you sense yeah, United might, might concede one or two today, but they've got to score three or four. And if you're winning games, that's all that matters. Obviously, there might be long-term issues which need to be solved, but scoring goals is the important thing for United. And yeah. I find it almost odd that you know Solskjaer's whole career, he always goes on about, he loves nostalgia, he loves indulging in the past, <laughs> talk about how they used to have so many striker shoes and they had four players who could play centre-forward. Yeah. But now United don't have that, that depth up front. So it, I just find it obscene to think United would abandon the right-wing issue which hasn't just been the issue this summer. It was an obvious issue in January. It was an obvious issue last summer, the January before, the summer before that. United need a new attacking option, and they've still yeah. got one. We've got one week left of the window. Surely that's the priority. But going on to transfers, and maybe we'll get a bit onto the Brighton preview in a minute, but Alex Tellers looks like another player who, who could join this week. United are open to signing a left-back. He's a player who obviously ticks a lot of boxes for them. He's not quite in the age range that they necessarily want, but... He's got an incredible uh, sort of attacking output for a left-back. But do you think he is a guaranteed starter if he signs ahead of Luke Shaw? I know he's a much more attack-minded mm. left-back. But with wan on the right, you wonder if having a lopsided defence is more of an issue than it would be now. Yeah, possibly. I mean, at least it would give you options. I think, you know, he is a very attacking left back. It, it would allow you to, you know, almost do horses for courses, really. You could pick Shaw against a Liverpool or a Man City. And you've also got the option of going to a back three and, and Shaw looks really good in that left-sided centre-back role. So I think it gives you options. It gives you some kind of... I think United do need more from their full-backs. I think this is, in a way, is, is why they've become easier to defend against because teams have mm. realised if you just crowd the centre... The, the wide forwards cut in field. Fernandez and Pogba are trying to trying to link up, and it can get very crowded there. And if you just defend narrow and let the fullbacks have the ball wide, then they haven't really got enough to hurt you. I mean, that is not a, a system you play against Liverpool. You wouldn't really let the fullbacks have the ball wide in your half because you know Alexander Arnold and Robertson would hurt you. With United, I think you can leave it to Wambasaka and Shaw and be pretty confident that what's coming in is is not going to be as dangerous. So I think United do need more from their fullbacks if they're going to go to the next level. That'd be a concern with Wambasaka. I think he showed progress last season. He, he still needs to do more for me as an attacking fullback. You compare him on Saturday with Tariq Lamptey, and you know the difference is night and day. I know Lamptey was playing right wing back, but for United, your right your right back should be almost be a right wing back when you're playing teams like Brighton. You, you should be camped in their half and, and dominating really. And you just don't see it from Wambasaka at the moment. So I'm sure he can get there, but well, at the moment you've got you've got two fullbacks at the moment who are arguably better as centre backs. In a, in, yeah. a, in, a, in a five at the back. And yeah, I think so. Obviously, there's, there's the, the remit for that. But like we said earlier in, in the podcast, and Wan-Bissaka's fitness clearly isn't there, do you think there's a wider issue with him? Because obviously, Joe Dallo is nowhere to be seen at the moment. Even Timothy Foster Mentz is ahead of him, which is mm. alarming. You've got Ethan Laird, who played twice in the Europa League last season, could still go out on loan, although the club are kind of reluctant against that. And maybe you may think he'll stay for another year. And then you've got Brandon Williams, who came through as a right back but is now more accustomed to being a left-back because he's played there on the first team. Do you think that they need someone who could play both flanks almost? Because there's argument to suggest they need a more attacking option on, on both full-back positions. 
Yeah, quite possibly. And I don't think Wan-Bissaka's got any competition, really. I mean, if he's 50% fit, he's probably starting games because, like you say, mm. Fossi, Mensah and Dallow are just not, they're not even close to, to his standard of well, fullback. No. And do you think that's part of the problem? I wrote a bit of it in a, in a piece yesterday. It's like, out of all the players in the team, maybe other than Maguire, Wan-Bissaka is the one player who has no mm. competition at all for his place. Because yeah. even De Gea's got competition now, but Wan-Bissaka, he can do, all, he, I'm not saying he does, but he could do anything wrong and he'd keep his place because there is, you know, you'd rather have an out of favour Wan Bissaka than Joe Vitello, evidently, based on Solskjaer's yeah. match selection recently. And it's just, it's a very odd one. But maybe, maybe it's not complacency, but we saw last season Luke Shaw's game went up to maybe the best he's ever played when he had competition from Brandon yeah. Williams. And I think Wan Bissaka needs it just as much on the right. But obviously, there are a couple of players, I think, switching Brandon Williams to a right back, Hella signed, would be it stroke of genius really because yeah I think both issues yeah I think that'll happen I mean it'd be it would be strange to keep Williams as third choice left back given he did so well last season I mean he's by no means the finished article but he looks promising it, he is a right-footed player I don't think you can really have that you, you can't really have an attacking fullback on his wrong foot the, the temptation is to cut in and I think if he played as right back he'd offer more going forward and you'd say he's better competition for where for one bissaka than Foster Mentor or Dallow at the moment so I think switching yeah. back to right back would make sense, but I do think they need more from their fullbacks. I mean, Tellez would give you that in the final third and would pose opposition defences a bit more of a headache. And we, we did see from Wambasaka at times last year that his attacking output improved. He did improve as the season went on. So there is work to do there. I mean, I'm still unsure how he was ever a winger in academy football because he still looks confused. He also he goes, the, United scouted at 804 right backs. You wonder yeah. how bad the other 803 must have been at going forward because and, and obviously United want someone who's rounded, they can do a bit of bit of everything, but he's never Wamsack will never be the playmaker Trent Alexander Arnold is, but no. Trent Alexander Arnold will never be the defensive right back Wambasaka is and it is very reactionary football. I mean you only have to go back two, three months and everyone would be there'd be lots of United fans saying Wambasaka's the best in the league. And now it's doom and gloom because United have only won one of their, their first two games in the yeah. league. But I guess that's just that's just the nature of what we're in. But Ty, we can't ignore maybe this issue. It's one week today, the transfer window closes. That should be a, a nice fun shift for us both, I'm sure, yeah. on uh, Monday the 5th of October. What do you think personally will happen in this last week of the window? Uh, oh, God. I, I just find it really hard to call now. Really hard to call. I mean... I think I think Tellez will probably happen. That seems mm. that, you know, it would be a surprise if that didn't happen, considering he's got a year left on his contract. I think Porto are unlikely to hold out for his release cause. I think Porto and Benfica both need sales, which is why City are able to sign Diaz for, for a pretty decent fee for a centre-back. So you'd think Tellez would happen, but the big issue is, I mean, the elephant's in the room is, is Jadon Sancho sitting there over in the corner, isn't it? And whether that yeah, will I happen... I, I guess mean, it, the, the thing about Sancho as well is it's I'm not it's it's almost an easy thing to say, isn't it, that expect a bid this week. Because it's either this week or never. This yeah. It's either next Monday, which you could say is next week, you know. But yeah. It'll It'd be, be foolish week. be foolish to bid on Tuesday, wouldn't it? Yeah, exactly. So you can expect that there will be some sort of movement and United haven't United have have made it clear that they're not out with the running for him. They still have him as their priority target. So if you want to sign him, it's now or never. You've got a week to yeah. do so. Obviously, United don't want to pay the 108 million upfront valuation which Dortmund want. United would want to do it staggered. They'd want to have 
a decent fee up front, like they did with Bruno Fernandes, like they did with Lukaku, and then add, have some performance-related add-ons on top to take it closer to Dortmund's value. But Dortmund, you know, they're the ones who said 10th of August. If you want them, you've got to have them by then. One one team, I've been out of Dortmund in a week's time, are going to have egg on their face because they will have been embarrassed in the transfer window, really. But, yeah. you know, if, if Dortmund sold them for a fee they were happy with, then they can just say it was their game all along. But for United, time is running out. But my my concern, Ty, is what if it gets to Thursday or Friday? There's no deal agreed with Sancho. You've got a game on Sunday, so, you yeah. know, you'll be quite occupied on that. And you've got three days left to get an alternative. Yeah, I mean... I don't think we can be nine weeks into the transfer window and United are still pursuing Sancho. You'd think now, if, if Dortmund really were adamant that this was it and it was done, you'd like to think that internally United would have picked up on that move music. The fact that they're still in there and, and still pursuing it and still holding talks. And you'd like to think that they've heard. I mean, this, it, it is all just one big game, isn't it? When we've talked mm. between clubs and agents and things like that. But if Dortmund were truly adamant that it was a non-starter, You'd like to think United would have got that message and would have realised that this isn't this isn't a game. This is for real. We need to move yeah. on. The fact that nine weeks in with a week to go, he's still the top target. They're still talking of doing a deal for him. You'd like to think that they've got encouragement from somewhere that it is doable. I mean, the fact that they've committed nine weeks to signing him almost feel like it, it needs to happen now. To commit nine, nine and a half weeks to Sancho and then bail out on Friday and, and sign someone on loan, I think would be... A bit disastrous. I mean, I suppose in theory, we, we could reach a point where Dortmund refused to sell for less than their asking price. United refused to pay the asking price and he stays there and both teams can say, well, we stuck to our guns. I think yeah. the, the embarrassment for United would be if they folded and paid £108 million for him up front for Dortmund. Well, like they did with Maguire last summer. Exactly. They just got to a stage where they negotiated all summer and then paid the fee they were quoting the in the first place. In one whack. Yeah, and I, I guess that's the, maybe the final question on Sancho for you, Ty, is like we've both argued. I know we we both think a right wing is more more pressing than a centre-back. Obviously, each fan has their own opinion. You're entitled to that, and you're not necessarily wrong. I just, I just don't agree personally with that outlook. But do you think that, you know, signing for Sancho for £108 million, do you think that's almost a worthwhile thing to do at this stage? I mean, like you said, it'll be embarrassing for United. Mm. They need him. They do need him. I think the the concern would be, I mean, there's financial concerns with what's going on, a loss of revenue and everything, which I think United are right about to a degree. Um, I mean, it's important to say that there's a lot of reaction for fans saying they're not going to spend any money. You know, they would spend 70, 75 million on Sancho. It's not that they don't, they don't want to spend 108 million pound. It's not that they want Sancho for nothing. So, you know, no, they, exactly. would spend, they would spend that money on him. And, you know, it, to a degree, they are right that they don't know when reviews are going to be back. Every time they play a game at Old Trafford behind closed doors, it's costing them millions of pounds. We're looking at another six months behind closed doors now. Um, that you know the, the Premier League are going to have to cough up to help out EFL clubs and, and non-league clubs, which I'm sure we'll both agree on, given our yeah. <laughs> the teams we support um, as, as being right. But you know, Sorry, Ryan Reynolds will bail us out. <laughs> we don't there need are, <laughs> You know, there are financial concerns and you can understand. United are right when they say paying £100 million for one player this summer is is unrealistic. And yeah. we can't be critical of football's greed on one hand and criticise Chelsea for spending £250 million and then criticise United for not spending £108 million. And go back to last summer, or if, if we weren't in these circumstances, if this was all just one bad dream, then you'd say £108 million for Sancho is, is probably a fair deal because 
he's a hell of a player and he's only 20. But, you know, they're, they're probably right. And I don't, I, I think now it would be too, I don't think they'll do it anyway because of financial issues. But yeah, I think it would be too embarrassing for them to pay the £108 million. And it sets a precedent that, you know, Dortmund are doing this because United paid what Leicester wanted for Maguire a year ago. They did yeah, exactly. the deal on Fernandez, but they can't go into every summer saying we're not going to pay top fee and then pay top fee for a target. Because next year, if they want, I mean, if we're kind of have a release clause, but say they want a striker next year and this club set up five fee of 90 million, they'll hold out knowing United will eventually cave. So I think United, exactly. and I think United can go to 108 million pounds for those two reasons, really. So I think there will have to be a, a meeting in the middle between the two clubs if it's going to happen. Yeah, exactly. There's got to be a compromise between both. Mm. Like I said, it only seems really likely from my point of view if United were to pay 60, 70 up front and then yeah. have these performance related add ons, as with Bruno Fernandes. We'll wait and see. But like you said, United already have to play a tax because they're Man United, you know. So yeah, you've exactly. got to understand that. And fans on social media, I think most of them do. I think there's just maybe some vocal ones and ones who maybe want to get maybe attention a bit more who like to mm. take it to the extreme. But to think that United aren't trying to actively improve their team in the transfer window is lunacy. Of course, mm. they know they need to improve. You know, there's, there's, United figures are there every day of the week. They're there watching every single game. They know that United aren't good enough. They know there needs to be improvement. But it's far easier than it looks on, on FIFA. But we'll wait and see. You know, United still have a week to save the transfer window. It's not been good enough so far. There's no escape in that fact. But, you know, they've always said judges when the window's closed. So we've got to give them to the 5th of October to do that. Uh, so yeah, I, I think... Sorry, I was going to say, I think you know, if, yeah. if, if we reach a week today and they haven't signed anyone added to their squad, then I think that's definitely the time to to ask questions. I think there'll be, yeah. there'll be serious questions asked then of, of you know what, what the ambitions here remain to and how serious they are about getting back to the top of the table. But for now, we probably give them another week before firing the bullets. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Ty, you've got a, should I say, daunting trip to Brighton on your hands. <laughs> you've got a, a long drive down to the yeah. Are you looking forward to your trip in midweek? That's Wednesday night for the Carabao Cup. Yeah, deja vu. Um, yeah, it is. I mean, thankfully, I didn't do it at the weekend. Samuel did it. Um, it I mean, it's a lovely ground. As Newbill grounds go, I wow. think it's a really... That's all we can say. It's a, a lovely really ground. Nice ground. And it's a nice place. You know, I've had Kevin Brighton games previously. Even on a Wednesday night, night in lockdown? Well, that's that's what I was coming to. It's, it's a nice place and a good night out. But I imagine a Wednesday night in lockdown, it, it's not quite as appetising, really. So, so that is unfortunate. It's... Um, yeah, it's a nice grind. I do think they're a nice club, um, but it's it's not one you'd really clutch forward to in lockdown. We are clutching at straws here, aren't we? Yeah. Uh, in terms of team selection, etc., for that match, um, surely Eric Bay starts this one. Surely Dean Henderson starts this one. Yeah. What other sort of changes would you go for? I mean, I was surprised that Daniel James wasn't in the squad at all the weekend. Mm. I think he just needs a run at left wing, to be honest. He's obviously out of favour. He's not looked that good in the last six months, maybe this whole year, really. But for me, Daniel James has to start on the left wing. Got to play him in his yeah. actual position to judge him fairly. Donny van der Beek's got to start again. Igalo yeah. through the middle. And then I guess there's there's option for change of defence. <sighs> Do you expect Maguire to start again? I mean, he, he seems to start constantly, doesn't he? Um, like I said, I mean, if he was starting, if he starting that last game, then I, you just presume he's starting every single week. He was the one survivor yeah. against Luton last week. Wouldn't surprise me if he was the one survivor again, to be honest. And, and they played a very similar team to to the one that beat Luton. You'd like to think now there are places up for grabs. I mean, Lindelof didn't do much wrong really on Saturday, so it'd be a surprise now if he was dropped for Baye. But I suppose Baye can just keep performing. 
yeah. is pretty much all he can do. The same with Henderson. I mean, De Gea's done nothing wrong. If anything, he's been more solid than he had been towards the end of last season. So Henderson just had to keep performing and put the pressure on. I suppose it's a big night for Van der Beek. I mean, I thought Pogba was really poor again on Saturday. And it feels to me like he he needs a rest. I mean, he's a difficult one to judge because obviously he had coronavirus during the summer and we don't know how much that takes out of you physically and whether he's still recovering from that. But he's been he's been really poor the first two games and it feels like he probably needs some time out of the firing line. I suppose the alternative is you play him here and put Van der Beek on the bench and, and start Van der Beek at Tottenham and just give Pogba another run out to try and improve his fitness. But if Van der Beek does start, I think he's probably the one who can who can force his way into the team for Tottenham. Yeah, exactly. It's got to be interesting. Like you said, that Tottenham game on the weekend, I'm sure Pogba would love to play against Mourinho at Old Trafford again. Mm. But uh, we'll have to wait and see what happens to that. And we'll be back later in the week to preview that Tottenham game. But as we said, United versus Brighton on Wednesday night in the Carabao Cup. We will bring you all the match build-up, all the coverage, everything you could wish for on uh, Wednesday night. And of course, we've got the Champions League draw on Thursday as well, which I'm sure we'll be able to react to in the podcast later this week. And we've, of course, got the impending doom of the transfer window one week left to bring you all the latest news in that as well there's probably lots of stuff we've not mentioned we've forgotten to mention but what can we do we're only human ty thank you very much for joining us this week on the Manchester Red podcast and thank you very much for joining us whether it was on audio or on visual if you are listening to the podcast form be checked if, be sure to check out the social media uh, platforms to see what me and Ty look like in the flesh. It's a, it's a real treat. It's worth logging on to your PC <laughs> to do just that. Um, but thank you very much for joining us once again. Like we said, we will be back later in the week to react to the Champions League draw, uh, react to Brighton in the Carabao Cup and look ahead to the exciting prospect of United versus Tottenham in the Premier League. So please do leave a like and subscribe if you haven't already. And we'll see you again next time.